The following podcast is a presentation of the PTB Media Network. What's up, PTB Nation? What's up, Portugal fans? Welcome to another installment of our journey back in time, our throwback Thursday tradition. It is Portugal at the Euros, a complete history. This is episode two, and today we're going to stay in Euro 84, and it's match day two, and we are in the historic Stade Velodrome in Marseille, and today Portugal and Nuestros Hermanos Spain. We're going to talk about this match. We're going to go through all of the occurrences in the match. We're going to go minute by minute almost and go through everything that happened. It was a, another good game, another um, tight game. Uh, both teams, you could see, knew each other. And I think you're going to enjoy this episode, all right? And uh, happy throwback Thursday to everyone listening, of course, both here on the PTB Media Network and on the Mr. Benfica feed as this is being simulcast on both feeds. And... Um, like I said, this is the fir- this is now the second of probably about thirty-five to forty installments, and when you include some bonus episodes, that will take us every Throwback Thursday all the way to the kickoff of Euro twenty twenty, which is of course is being played this summer in twenty twenty one. It's going to take us all the way to June to that opener in Budapest when Portugal take on Hungary. But until we get there, we are going to relive. Portugal's history at the Euro, match by match, all right, one week at a time. Um, There will be some weeks where there's two episodes just because of the timeline we have. We don't have quite 35 weeks um, to go. We have about 27 or so, if my math is correct. So there will be weeks where I'll have to do two episodes. And um, this month, there'll be two episodes. It'll be on Christmas uh, Eve. Um, That will be the week that we have two episodes on December the 24th, okay, so I can get you through your Christmas day, Nobody, when you're not at work, um, your, your boxing day, workout at the gym, whatever, you can listen to two episodes of that weekend, but right now, we're going to listen to Portugal versus Spain, Euro 84, match day two. Coast to coast instrumentals.
What's up, PTB Nation? Welcome to another episode of Mr. Portugal. This is cap number five for me as Mr. Portugal. And today we're going back to 1984 once again. And it's finally time for the second group stage match of Euro 84. It's Portugal and Spain. It is Us Patricios versus Nuestros Hermanos. Now, it's been a while since I've done Mr. Portugal, and you might be wondering why. Way back on July the 10th, was the first part of this Euro 84 series, and I reviewed Portugal's nil-nil draw with then-European uh, champion and defending World Cup finalist, West Germany, and I said we'd we'd complete this whole story of Portugal at the Euros um, by the time Portugal kicked off in the UEFA Nations League. Well, Portugal kicks off in the UEFA Nations League in about an hour and a half. So that's not going to happen, and here's why. Um, a few days after that episode dropped, I was going to, to record the this one, the one you're going to hear now. I was going not to record, but I was going to watch the match so that I could record it. And the all-important website, footballia.net, had crashed. It had been hacked. And it had gone down. I had reported this on the PTB network um, through the Parking the Bus podcast. I had reported that the website was down. And the website had actually reached out back to me. We had exchanged some nice messages and tweets back and forth. And they were just build, rebuilding their security system. And fortunately now it is September the 5th. And Footballia is back up. So I have again watched. I've returned to watching Euro 84. So in this episode today we're going to talk about... Portugal versus Spain, 1984, all right? And I'm also going to, in the next segment, give you a little background on what's going on in the world. Mostly it's going to be in the world of sports in this episode. Uh, 1984 was an interesting year for sports. And we're even going to... we're going to get a little bit of a, of a musical taste as well of what 1984 sounded like in these two countries. I think you're going to enjoy this episode, so sit there, sit tight. All right, we'll be right back after this brief break, and we'll get right into this episode, and I will start with the background leading into the match. It was, again, June of 1984, so sit right tight, pull up a comfy chair, crack open a Sagres, and get ready to get in the DeLorean and go back to 1984. Quando volto para trás a festejar e alguém me diz o que caiu. Mas ao mesmo tempo que Chagas cantava a vitória, lá atrás desenhava-se a tragédia. A uns 300 metros da chegada, um cão atravessara-se no caminho de Agostinho, provocando-lhe uma queda que o deixara extremamente comorido. E é projetado no ar e quando caiu, caiu já com a cabeça no chão. E eu só nos podia ver empurra, não empurra, mas assim já com uma voz assim quase sei lá, não sei explicar. Mas todas as tentativas para o salvar revelaram-se infrutíferas. A 10 de maio de 84, Agostinho, o melhor ciclista português de sempre, desaparecia do nosso convívio e o seu funeral constituiu uma impressionante manifestação de pesar. Foi aqui que tive o primeiro emprego, foi aqui que conheci a minha noiva. O, o desporto atraiu-me, daqui partir para o ciclismo. Uh, é certo que o ciclismo para mim 
trouxe-me grandes vantagens na minha vida particular, meus grandes sabores. No entanto, não estou arrependido de ter deixado o meu primeiro emprego e, e entrar na alta roda do ciclismo mundial. And that is a news report on some years later by RTP um, covering the 1984 accident and death of Portuguese cyclist Joaquim Agostinho, the the greatest Portuguese cyclist of all time. No no relation to me, um, although my grandfather's name was also Joaquim Agostinho. Uh, and uh, Joaquim Agostinho, the cyclist, was not from very far away from where my, my grandfather's from. Um, Joaquim Agostinho, natural of of the greater Torres Vedras uh, Conselho, just, just a little bit south of, of where my grandfather is from um, in Abidush. So it's very interesting, but no, there is no relation between myself and the late great Joaquim Agostinho. But um, what you heard there was a little report. So it was early in 1984. Uh, it was, to be exact, May the 10th, 1984, that cyclist Joaquim Agostinho would, would die as a result of a fall on the Tour do Algarve. Um, of the 1984 season, he had just returned to Portuguese cycling that season. Returned to Sporting Clube Portugal's uh, cycling team, and as anyone who follows cycling knows, uh, the Tour do Algarve is one of the really big early season tours in cycling. A lot of riders use it to prepare for the very prestigious uh, Tour de France later in the summer. And this was a stage that was finishing in in the town of uh, of Quarteira. And at the time of his fall, Joaquim Agostinho was wearing the yellow jersey, which means he was the leader of the general, general classification of the tour. Um, and just hundreds of meters from the finish line, a dog ran out into the road as he was sprinting to the finish. And unfortunately, he hit the dog with his bicycle he didn't see it and he was propelled up into the air while still on his bicycle and he landed on the top of his head with his bicycle uh still mounted on his bicycle if you will so he flipped okay so now his head are where his bicycle should be and his bicycle's up where his head should be so all that weight and all that velocity and all that uh all of that speed and he was not wearing a helmet because Unfortunately, cyclists very rarely wore helmets in those days. Um, he fell f flat on the top of his head. And at first, it looked like he was going to be okay as he was able to mount, remount to his bicycle. And he was helped by teammates, his sporting teammates, across the finish line. He would lose the yellow jersey. And um, he would immediately go to the medical tent. And he would actually walk himself into an ambulance. Okay, and this is the part that's really tragic. His ambulance would send him back to his hotel um, as he, he seemed shaken and he seemed a little bit confused, but otherwise all right. And they would send him back to, to his hotel. And this is the worst part. He would, at his hotel, they would start to dress his head with, with ice trying to reduce swelling, I'm assuming. He didn't get cut. There was no bleeding. Had there been, they would have taken a much more drastic uh, approach, I think. And eventually he would go to the hospital in Faru where they would do an x-ray, and the x-ray revealed that he had broken the parietal bone in his skull. And this was now some four hours after his fall. 
and he would be conveyed at that point by ambulance some 280 kilometers from Faru to Lisboa. That was the idea was he was going to go to Lisbon by ambulance, the nearest city that could treat um, that could treat him. And unfortunately, on the way to Lisbon, he fell into a coma in that ambulance. And he would sub- subsequently die five days later in that coma. Joaquim Extinho was 41 years old at the time of his death. And this was a major story in sports in 1984 in Portugal. And why I bring this up is because I'm just trying to, to go back to 1984 to let you, the listener, know where the world was and where specifically Portugal was at that time in history in 1984. It was a very... very um tumultuous time in Portugal. We talked last last episode about the Dona Branca, the Dona Branca scandal, the Ponzi scheming scandal in which so many so many people, mostly elderly, lost their life savings investing in this phony scandal and there was austerity coming down as Portugal owed a lot of money. Uh, Portugal was still struggling in the post-Carnation Revolution era and the democracy was weak and security was weak. Uh, pol- the police had their hands full. There was so much to to worry about at that time. Portugal, a much less safe Portugal than the one we know today, um, at least statistically speaking. And this was a major story in the news that year: the death of their greatest cyclist of all time, Joaquim Extinho. And I I bring this up because it is quite the quite the 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 tragedy because i think had they had had the medical personnel reacted appropriately or at least what we today with the benefit of of hindsight know as appropriately and had sent him to the hospital maybe even if it had to be all the way to lisbon immediately 4 hours would have been plenty of time to get there and if they'd taken stricter precautions he probably would have been saved I think it, that should have been like a, a life flight <laughs> situation. He hit his head, and anyone that saw the the, the 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 crash would have known that how dangerous that was. But I guess at those day in those days they didn't fully understand the severity of brain trauma. Who who can only imagine the type of concussion he suffered just because he was able to get up? Probably suffered all kinds of nerve damage. Was in shock at first, and was why he was able to get up and walk and get himself to medical attention. But to think of how slow the reaction to this was is really really tragic. And you know. Perhaps the greatest Portuguese cyclist of all time could have been saved. Um, it, it is hard to hard to say, but unfortunately he passed away on May the 10th, just a month before the match we're talking about today. And other news that would come in the sports world in Portugal would take place a little later in the year. We're talking about in October now of 1984, well after this tournament that we're reviewing, but... In 1984, Formula One Portugal Grand Prix was a memorable one, and it went down in the Formula One history as Austrian Formula One driver Nicky Lauda would clinch his third and final F1 World Championship in the Portuguese GP. The Portugal Grand Prix was the final event of that year's F1 season, round 16, and the late the late Nicky, Nicky Lauda would clinch his third title on that day. And the driver would, before his his death in 2019, tell Autosport.com 
that that day was the the pivotal and greatest moment of his career and it came in the like we said the 1984 GP of Portugal and it was the first Portugal GP the first Grand Prix Formula 1 in Portugal since 1960 so 24 years later Formula 1 returned to Portugal to the newly renovated uh, Estoril International Raceway Nicky Nicky Lauda as we said would 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 he wouldn't win the stage he wouldn't win the the grand prix but he would win the cha- world championship in this final stage and he would go by tour in the late stages of the round of the of the race he would pass italian michele alboreto brazilian nelson piquet who was the pole position driver in this race F- the finnish driver kiki rosenberg rosberg and the british driver nigel mansell as well as Brazilian legend Ayrton Senna, one of the great, great Formula One drivers of all time. And Nicky Lauda would finish in second place on the day, get on the podium. Although he did not catch the Frenchman Alain Prost in this race, he did, by grabbing second place, catch him in the general classification. And the Austrian would finish top of the F1 World Championship by half a point at the end of this race. And it was a memorable one for F1 fans. And um, he would, like we said, win his third championship. And also in cycling this year, um, later in the summer, after the death of Joaquim Cristinho, the Volta Portugal would be won by Vanescal Fernandes. And... Outside of sports, there was also news um, in 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 general news news um, in the general news category, if you will. As both of the the nations we're talking about today, both Portugal and Spain in 1984 were on the outside looking in of the European Union, the EU, and they were both looking forward to the EU's enlargement scheduled for 1986, and they were looking to be admitted into the EU in 1986. Many in both nations were hoping for more prosperous days ahead as life at this time was was difficult in both nations living outside the EU here in the in the early to mid 80s and still the nations are recovering from long 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 uh, running dictatorships as Spain. S- Spain was for many many years under the military dictatorship of Francisco Franco as Portugal was also under a corporatist dictatorship of the Estado Novo, which we've talked about before. And by by the, the mid-70s, uh, a decade earlier, it brought both the death of, of Francisco Franco and it brought the Carnation Revolution to Portugal. And the Iberian Peninsula was, for the first time in a long time, um, motioning and progressing towards democracy. And both nations were making rapid strides towards that with their eyes on membership to the EU. In the late 70s, both nations would be, sorry, this was in the late 70s. And then both nations would be accepted into the EU, but with no ceremony, no official ceremony. Only the simple raising of the two flags on the 1st of January 1986 after more than six years of negotiation and many Portuguese and many Spanish felt that this was a chance to to stabilize their economies and stabilize their governments which had been incredibly unstable since the falling of their their dictatorship regimes a decade earlier and 
with that isolation that comes with being outside the EU, what I really like doing when when talking about this time in history, because I am a big history nerd, but what, what I like looking at is pop culture as well in the two countries. So as we go to break here, or for this break, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play for you the number one song in Spain in June of 2000, uh, June of 1984, excuse me, some 30 for 36 years ago okay and it's interested it's interesting and i like this time in history because you can learn you can see where a culture was because if you go to pull the number one song in portugal or spain today it's likely the number one song in a lot of countries it's likely a song you've heard on the radio here in the united states in canada and australia and germany in 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 south africa wherever you live wherever you're listening from um it's likely a song you already know but in these days there was an the isolation was such that uh the nations you know had their own had their own music industry if you will or they had a stronger one and people didn't know so much about about the the entertainment world outside of their own country they were starting to be introduced to the west and starting to be introduced to american and british uh entertainment but they still had their own identity so this is the number one song june 1984 in spain it is the number one selling single i should say and it is one it is the late great tino casal with his song panico in Aleden. Enjoy. This is Panico in Aleden by Tino Casal. And after this, you will hear the the Eurovision and the UEFA Euro 84 anthem playing. And I will and I will be back to start reviewing this match from 1984. Euro 84, the second ma- uh, the second group match between Portugal and Spain here on the PTB Media Network.
And that sound right there, that great piece of music, that is the classical Te Deum, the anthem of Eurovision, especially back in those days. And in just a few moments, it will switch to the UEFA Euro 84 anthem, which is as 1984 as it gets, like I said in the last episode. What I didn't get to in the last episode, and I want to start this one off to here is Portugal's roster. I didn't even get to this when we talked about the first match. So, a very... We, we, well, we talked about the, the struggle of a team being managed by committee with four, four coaches, all with equal input, apparently. So, this team must have been a, an absolute blast to, to select. I'm sure there were other players, you know, fought over. But you can see the political nature of this squad selection when I break it down by club. So basically all but one, two, three players in this roster come from either Benfica or Porto. Alright, one from Sporting. And then the two backup goalies are from other teams. One backup goalkeeper from Vitoria Stubal and the other from Portimonense. So everybody else in the roster, aside all the outfield players, aside from Rui Jordão, who played for Sporting, all come from Benfica and Porto. So this tournament is a big, big opportunity for these guys to play on a large stage in front of new eyeballs. Remember, it's 1984. Nobody is watching football that is played outside of their country with the exception of the European Cup and the UEFA Cup and the Cup Winners' Cup, okay? So Benfica and Porto players, although they have played in those competitions and been visible, it... This is a real opportunity in a summer tournament to be visible to a whole new audience outside of their uh, of their nation, and the excitement for for fans to see other foreign players, players from other leagues, also in front of you. So we're gonna go right through the Portugal roster here. This is Group Two, of course. Benfica, uh, excuse me, it is Group Two that Portugal are playing in. I was looking at the roster, and the first player is, of course, from Benfica. That's why I just had the Freudian slip there, and it is the goalkeeper Manuel Bento. He is 35 years old in this tournament he is from Benfica uh, wearing number two is Nene he is also from Benfica it's interesting in this tournament the way the numbers were distributed as the forwards and midfielders are wearing the defenders numbers and the defenders are mostly wearing the attacking numbers it's really interesting I believe back in this day this is a little bit of a trivia I believe players got their squad numbers for major tournaments by drawing them out of a hat because what was the normal practice at this time was each match um, the starting 11 would wear numbers 1 to 11, and the substitutes would wear the other numbers. And because you're at a final tournament where all the, the players had to wear the same number for the entire tournament, um, basically they, they threw positions out, and I guess the way that they decided to d figure out what number players would wear would be rather than having them fight over numbers is have them draw them out of a hat. So we have a back line in Portugal that is going to wear the <laughs> they're going to wear the the 9 and 10 right between the center of, of defense. It's quite funny. And as is uh the number 11, they're all playing across the back. But I regress. Number 2 was Nene. Number 3 is Rui Jordão of Sporting. He's 31 years old wearing number 3. Number 4 is the legend Fernando Chalana. He's 25 at this time and he is wearing the number 4. Number 5 is the very ironically named Vermelhinho. I say ironic because he plays for Football Clube do Porto. He's 25 years old, a midfielder wearing number 5. 
Fernando Gomes, one of the strikers, is number six. He is 27 years old, of course, from Futebol Clube do Porto. Carlos Manuel, the midfielder, is number seven. He's 26 years old. He plays for Benfica at this time. Antonio Veloso is a defender and a midfielder. Uh, he's a current, obviously, BTV um, commentator today, BTV analyst. Uh, but here in 1984, he is a 27-year-old hybrid defense and midfielder from Benfica, wearing number eight in this competition. Number nine is the other João Pinto, not the one people my age might remember, not João Vieira Pinto, but the other one, o João Pinto Porto, as I always called him. He was always number two for Porto, but in this competition, João Pinto, the defender, is wearing number nine. He's only 22 years old. He is the youngest member of the team here in 1984. Number 10 is another defender. It's Antonio Lima Preda. He's also from Porto. He is one of the center backs. Ulrich Gomes, also from Porto. He's wearing number 11 as a defender. He's 28 years old. Uh, backup goalkeeper, like we said, Jorge Martins is 29. He plays for Vitória Stubal, and he's wearing number 12. Number 13 is Antonio Souza, 27-year-old midfielder, Football Club do Porto. Number 14 is Antonio Frasco. He's 29 years old, playing also for Football Club do Porto, another midfielder. 15 is midfielder, also from Football Club do Porto. He's 25 years old. It's Jaime Pacheco. He would go on later to be the one manager that took a championship away from the big three. That's right. He was the manager of Boa Vista when they were Portuguese champions in 2001. And... Number 16 is Antonio Bastos Lopes. He's 30. He's a midfielder from Benfica. Number 17 is Álvaro Magalhães. He's 23. He's a defender from Benfica. Eduardo Luiz is number 18. He is a 28-year-old defender from Porto. Number 19 is Diamantino Miranda. He's only 24 and he's a forward from Benfica. And number 20 is the third goalkeeper, Vitor Damas. He's 36 years old from Porti Mones. Now, with that out of the way, let's get to the second group stage match, Euro 84. Okay, it is Sunday, June the 17th, 1984, of course. We are in Marseille at the Stade Villardrome, and there are 30,000 in attendance. The referee is the Frenchman Michel Vautreau. And we are going to go down really quickly with the starting lineup, starting with Spain. And in goal, Luis Arconada. Uh, number two was Santiago Ur Urquiaga. Andoni Gokocheja is in there also. Jose Antonio Camacho, number three, also along the back. And then you got Julio Alberto, Antonio Mahe Maceda, Vitor Munoz, Gordillo, Ricardo Galejo, uh, Santillana, and Francisco Carrasco round out the 11 for Spain. And Spain are managed by Miguel Munoz. Portugal's 11 in goal. Manuel Bento, four across the back. It is João Pinto, Lima Pereira, Urico Gomes, and Álvaro Magalhães. They'll play with... They'll play with five. Typically, they played with five in midfield. We'll see how it plays out throughout the match. But the listed five in midfield, Carlos Manuel, Antonio Souza, Frasco, Jaime Pacheco, and Shalana playing in between the midfield and the striker, Rui 
Jordão. As we said, Portugal are managed by a group of four. On paper, it is Fernando Cabrita, the manager, and also making the decisions. Tony. Um, wow, the names have, <laughs> have escaped me. It's Antonio Moraes and José Augusto are the other two that make up the team of four that um, in reality manage this team, even though the de facto manager on paper is Fernando Cabrita. Let's uh, get kicked off now. Santijo kicks off to Gallego, and we are underway in Marseille. Spain playing in their change strip of all white while Portugal playing in their traditional red tops with green shorts and red socks. Jaime Pacheco is parking himself right in front of the back four again just as he did in the first match against West Germany. Very much the holding midfielder that we see nowadays. Very much the one that parks it right between the two central defenders. And sort of sweeps in front of the back four. A lot of side-to-side lateral passes. Not a lot of movement up and down the pitch, but a lot of movement right to left. And uh, that that's where Portugal line up there. And um, he is a player that will be always available in support for the midfielders uh, by playing the position that way. We move to the fifth minute, and it's Souza trying to play out of the back. But he is stripped by Gallego. But the counterattack is killed by João Pinto, who is able to poke the ball away from Gallego. And the ball rolls some 15 meters or so back into the area. And Bento comes out and picks it up. Remember, in 1984, you can pass the ball to your goalkeeper and he can pick it up. It's a rule that would would be around for about 10 more years uh, in, in football before that was done away with. It is a slow first 10 minutes, and both sides are doing uh, are doing a fair amount of feeling each other out, and um, most of the play is very slowly, uh, is very slow, and it's a lot of buildup out of the back with very little going forward for both teams. Um, the two teams seem to mirror each other pretty well, and... Through the the club game, you know, and through the the exploits of the European Cup, the Cup Winners Cup, and the UEFA Cup, through their respective club teams, a lot of these players from the same couple of club teams in Spain, and as we said, Portugal is represented for the most part by two clubs in this national team. So a lot of European experience between these two players and their paths have crossed several times. I I think the two teams were probably very familiar with each other considering um, the limited exposure in those days that there was to football beyond your own borders like we, we said in earlier segments. In the 10th minute, it is Carlos Manuel pressuring forward on the dribble for Portugal after he's picked out by a a vertical pass from his Benfica teammate, Fernando Chalana, but he is cut down five meters from the penalty area by Gordijo, and the cross from Frasco on the restart is intended for Rui Jordão, but it gets flicked up into the air by Camacho, the former Benfica manager, Jose Antonio Camacho, and he his header goes straight up into the air in. Arconada comes out 
arms fully stretched, jumps higher than everyone else, it goes up as high as possible, and at his highest point, grabs the ball out of the air, brings it down, and safely drops into a front smother to protect it. Minutes later, it's Portugal again pushing forward. This time, it's down the right, and it is João Pinto who gets forward. He tries to rifle in a cross for Jordão, but instead of finding the sporting striker, João Pinto crosses high and wide and goes well out for a Spain goal kick. 13th minute, and now it's Spain's turn. Outswinging cross from Maceda down the left. He finds Santijana on the far post who brings the ball down off his chest and he hits a half volley towards the far post but it is an impressive save from Manuel Bento fully outstretched gets a hand to it to deflect it wide of the post and out for a corner the first of the match nothing comes from it however as it is over hit by uh, by Gallego and goes over everyone's head and out for a throw at the opposite side of the pitch. Portugal struggle to get service to Shalana, I noted, and to Jordão. And also, Carlos Manuel is not having any success getting in between the lines the way he did against West Germany. He is not, he's just, he's not being able to find himself on the ball the way he was in the first match. Uh, it looks like he, Portugal was well scouted by Spain. And it looks like Miguel Munoz, the manager for Spain, uh, has prepared a game plan that was well adjusted and ready. It, as Port it looks well studied as they really took away a lot of what Portugal liked to do and a lot of what Portugal did well going forward in that first match was taken away from them. 21st minute now, and we have Jaime Pacheco as he as he threads a pass through to Rui Jordão. Jordão will split the two defenders and be in near the end line. He'll cross for Souza, who's arriving late, but it is Goicochea getting in there first to break it up and put it out for a Portugal corner. Uh, a corner that was squandered by Portugal. And watching this, this match, I did note here that we can see at each end of the pitch why this stadium is called the Stade Verodrome. Uh, the Verodrome, um, if you're not aware, that is the name of a cycling sprint track. You see it in the Olympics a lot. It is a banked track that goes all the way around the field uh, for cycling, for sprint cycling. The, the cyclists go as fast as they can around that track. And at both ends of the, of the pitch, you can see the banked track in the background. And that's a nice little little shot of nostalgia for us because that, that track is no longer there. Though the stadium is still called the Stade Velodrome, there is no Velodrome uh, inside the stadium anymore. In fact, it was I think it was removed many years ago, but in 84, it was still there. We go to the 25th minute now, and it's Jordan again, and he is fouled by Gokachea. Uh, and Gokochea will protest to the French referee, and that will earn him a place in the referee's book as he is the first player to receive a yellow card caution in the match. I noted that through 30 minutes, the two sides are pretty evenly matched. I did say that um, 
that Portugal are getting more of the ball, but Spain have had the better scoring opportunities thus far as we have seen a couple of saves from Manuel Bento in the first half hour. Both sets of supporters have made themselves heard at various times in this first half. And in the 35th minute, it's Jean Pashik now making a rare venture wide to the right touchline. He's on the ball and he is tackled by by Julio Alberto. And both players fall and roll into the linesman and take him down with them, prompting loud cheers from the 30,000 in attendance at the velodrome. And... Again, I'm noting that Shalana is non-existent, just as he was in the first match. I'm not sure if he was carrying some kind of knock or just some kind of large fatigue, but he's literally running up and down the pitch, up and down the pitch, um, and seeing so little of the ball. But I did note that um, for anyone who saw him play in the 1983 UEFA Cup final, especially the second leg, just a little over a year before this, it's hard to believe how how little um, how little influence in the match a player with the incredible talent, the level of Fernando Chalana, is having on this match here, and um, Portugal just not having any success working the ball wide to him. Neither he nor nor Alvaro. Down the left are really getting forward. There's been almost no crosses sent in from the left. As, in, you know, like in that 1983 UEFA Cup final, that was an attack for Benfica down the left. And in, in the first game against West Germany, you saw Alvaro get forward and you saw him be part of the attack, overlapping for for uh, Shalana. But as soon as I did write that down, I also didn't note that Again, Carlos Manuel, nowhere to be found in this first half. He's not getting on the ball. He's not checking the way he was in the previous match, getting the ball, turning, and finding teammates. He's not linking up play the way that I'm sure Portugal were hoping he would have. But I did note that in the 45th minute now, finally, Shalana on the ball on the left. He beats a few Spanish players on the on the dribble. You can hear the Portugal fans start to roar as their, as their player, their star starts to... To dazzle a little bit, he plays a square ball after that for Frasco. Frasco tries to play Jordão in on goal, but his ball is hit far too heavily, and it rolls into the waiting arms of Arconada, and right on the stroke of 45 minutes, right on time, the referee blows his whistle for halftime. So the two teams retreat to the locker rooms with a nil-nil stalemate. Uh... Thus far, and I'm sure that the four-man coaching squad for for Portugal is gonna is about to take the gloves off and have at it in in the locker room for for everyone to hear. And I can't imagine much of a positive word was said in this halftime talk. Uh, I'm imagining when I think of these halftimes with with four coaches that either they're going in an office screaming at each other, having a a brawl for all to see. Who gets to make any decisions? And the players kind of sit there twiddling their thumb, feeling awkward about it. Or the team's kind of the team, I should say, breaks up into their club allegiances and goes to their respective coaches and starts talking. And um, I can just imagine the absolute disaster, chemistry-wise, that this team must have been. But they are 
they are cohesive on the pitch once that ball rolls. They're cohesive. They're playing as a unit. Okay, they're not playing pretty. They're not creating much, but they're very compact, well organized, and keeping the game in front of them for the most part. Aside from the two saves that Manuel Bento had to make in that first half, it was a pretty solid professional performance for Portugal. Same as is in the first match of the group stage, um, and it looks like Portugal are going to be patient and wait for their opportunity. While Spain also playing a bit, a bit uh, standoffish, much the same. As uh, neither team really were was so much in need of a win, but um, but Spain Spain after after the first the first match is is feeling out Portugal a little bit more. Um, but Spain had to know in the back of their minds they had West Germany coming up on the final day of the group stage or on the final match of the group stage. And I can't imagine that the Spanish players and staff wanted to save it for a match against the World Cup finalists and defending European champion. I had to think that the that the talk at halftime was to go for it and to try to get this result and try to get these two points. Remember, it's 1984, two points for a win here. And I have to think that that's where their their um, priorities and their attention had to be focused. But if you're Portugal, you've already got a point, and uh, it doesn't seem like the worst idea in the world to to try to hold this point and leave it all to play for on the final day, trying to beat a Romania team. But however, remember again, 1984, the Iron Curtain is there. Romania are on the east side of it. Okay, they're on the other side. Very, very little known about the Romanian side. So also dangerous if Portugal are just going to be pleased with this with this draw that they are halfway to right now and not wanting to try to get a goal and trying to steal two points here and try to put themselves in a better position to advance. Uh, so I'm going to take a quick little break right now, okay? And on the other side of this quick little little. Um, break in the in this quick little transition uh you will hear me on the other side and we will get right into the second half okay this is mr portugal it's cap number five i am the mr mike agustinho and you can follow the ptb media network on twitter at ptb underscore media same handle on instagram all right and we will be right back here with uh the second group stage match of Euro 84. And welcome back to Mr. Portugal here on the PTB Media Network. And welcome back to our trip back in time, back to the wonder days of 1984. That's right, we're back in the mid-80s. And we are at Euro 84, as you know. And it is time to get into the second half of this match today this Spain versus Portugal second group stage game from group 2 of Euro 84 and it is Jordão and Carlos Manuel kicking off to start the second half and the sun has set in southern France night has fallen and the floodlights have come on and the crowd is excited and you can hear fans and supporters from both teams chanting and supporting their side 47th minute and we get a nice combination play through the middle of the park 
by the Spanish. It is Gallego, Santillana, and Gudijo that will combine nicely and play in Carrasco. But Uriku steps in at the final moment. And he blocks any opportunity for Carrasco. And he manages to put the ball out over the end line for a corner kick. Of which Spain are unable to make any use of. Two minutes later in the 49th. It's Shalana now. We talked about in the first half how he needed to get involved. Well in the second half Shalana gets involved. And he creates space down the left. As he draws two defenders. Alvaro overlaps. Shalana plays Alvaro, who then plays it directly right back to Shalana. Shalana will square to, to Jaime Pashik, who finds Frashku in, in space. Frashku turns, faces the goal, puts it on his preferred right foot, and has a go of it from about 30 meters, but his effort is too high. But it is a good uh, start to the half for Portugal in that regard. As you can see, the attitude has changed a little bit, and Portugal are looking to go for it now, uh, knowing, of course, as these two teams did uh, when they kicked off before the match even started, West Germany had already won, so both teams needed a win to keep pace with West Germany. However, a loss was the was was the worst possible result for both teams. At least a draw leaves them both with the, their own fate in their hands on the final match day. 52nd minute now, and it's Jourdain dropping into space into Portugal's own half. He he drops really deep to come receive the ball. Receives it. He's marked by two Spanish defenders, but manages to turn despite be facing his own goal in, you know, still in the center circle. He manages to turn and beat them both, and now he's got space in front of him, and he is running at pace with it. However, his Penultimate touch gets just away from him as he had Shalana breaking down the right on this one. Shalana was looking for the ball as he was cutting towards goal. He would have had his preferred left foot on the inside. But that penultimate touch on the ball was just too heavy. It got away from him. And Urikiaga was able to get in there and get the ball sniffed out before Portugal could set up a goal scoring opportunity. 53rd minute and now we get build up play and it starts with Uriq Gomes in the back as he is playing the central defense of course and he plays a 1-2 with Carlos Manuel back to Uriq Uriq next goes to Jaime Pacheco who squares to Shalana uh, Shalana had drifted central and now Shalana starts to find space and he carries it back towards his left foot Starts to draw defenders, and at that point, when the defenders co commit towards the ball, Shalana drops in a beautiful chipped ball over the top, right onto the run of Alvaro Magalhães. Alvaro takes a touch, looks up, cuts back, and then squares the ball right onto the run of Souza. Souza picks up his head, puts it on his preferred right foot. He's got time and space. The Spanish defense is all out of whack, and Souza bends the ball with his right foot around the goalkeeper's outstretched arm and into the far post. And ladies and gentlemen, Portugal have their first goal in Euro history, at least in the final stage of Euro history, and it is Portugal's first goal in a major Final stage since 1966, since the World Cup, since Ozebu scored a penalty kick on the legend Yashin in the third place match. 
and Portugal are on the score sheet first. You can see the Portuguese immigrants in the crowd going crazy. The flags are waving. They are chanting. And Portugal are ahead 1-0 in the 53rd. And they're starting to have visions of getting the two points and going into the final match day competing and fighting with Germany for first place. It's a beautiful goal for Portugal. And Spain are left in shock for a bit and to the delight, like I said, of most of the people inside the Velodrome. Now, 55th minute in Portugal on a bit of extra oxygen here. They got a real oxygen boost with that goal. They're on the attack again, and it's Shalana at pace again down the left. He cuts onto his right, forces the defenders again to commit. But he fires with his inside right foot, but his shot is just wide to the near post. 60th minute in Portugal are in control here. Spain looking confused and unsure going into this final half hour of play. 61st minute. Nice breakout down the left once again. And once again, it is the man, Shalana, at pace. Once again, defenders are drawn in to commit to him. And at that moment, Shalana, with lots of intelligence, plays the ball right into the space they just abandoned and on to the run of his overlapping left back, Alvaro, from his his club team, of course, from Benfica, his club mate. He runs into the space, Alvaro, Looks up, crosses for Jordão. Jordão is just strides from touching the ball into the goal. But at the very last moment, there's a last-ditch sprint and slide by Julio Alberto, who prevents Portugal from doubling their lead. A minute later, it's Portugal on the attack again, this time down the right through Carlos Manuel. He gets into the penalty area and goes down, but the referee says, play on, and it is Julio Alberto once again with the defense and he stops he gets the stop once again for Spain. Spain however will slowly regroup and they will start to move their line of confrontation further up the pitch. What I mean by that is they're not sitting so deep in their own end. Spain are starting to move out further and they're starting to confront Portugal on the ball at a higher spot, a higher territory on the pitch keeping the game further from their own goal. And Portugal are adjusting just a little bit, and you see them starting to drop their lines ever so slightly and starting to retreat just a little bit here to provide a little uh, more caution, if you will, as they do have the lead heading into the 70th minute. And Portugal are content now to hold their shape. You can see it. And they're going to start looking to just counter. And Jordão is doing a lot of work. He's dropping very deep to come get the ball. Um, he has run around a lot up high all match without much service. Now he's dropping into an almost midfield role to get on the ball, which is helping Portugal play out of their end. But at the end, but after that, Portugal are left without an option high, and they're allowing Spain to to step their line even higher. And now Portugal find themselves playing in their own half a lot more than I think they would like to. But it's just the nature of the way that the match is is going now plus Spain uh having to be on the front foot now they're they're chasing a result and they have to move further up the pitch so in the 71st minute Miguel Munoz will make a substitution Spain bring in Sarabia in place for Julio Alberto and in the 72nd minute it is Gokochea playing wide to Maceda Maceda plays in 
to the sub Sarabia, but his attempt is blocked and out for a corner. Karashku with the uh, with the ensuing corner, it finds Santijana on the far post. Santijana heads it back towards goal. Gokochea is there, but his effort is blocked. But ensuing rebound, the ball drops right in front of Santijana, and Santijana will shoot and beat Bento to the goalkeeper's left. Off of the post and off the inside netting and into the goal. And just like that, Spain have pulled level in the 72nd minute. And Portugal are going to be frustrated because they have been the better side in this match, in my opinion. And I think in a lot of people covering the match's opinion, despite Spain having some of the dangerous chances for large stretches of this match, Portugal are the better side. And they're right there playing with a with a with another world power. They at first uh, really showed their quality in, in fighting blow for blow with the defending European champions and the defending... World Cup finalist West Germany. Now with Spain, Portugal had taken a lead and they were in, heading into the final quarter of an hour almost with the lead. But Santijana will make it 1-1 in the 72nd. And Spain, just like that, the pendulum swings into their favor. And now it's Spain with all of the momentum. And they are pushing for a winner while Portugal are in retreat and dropping their their deep-lying blocks now, looking to hang on for this hard-earned point a quarter of an hour to go. Portugal finally make their first substitution, and it is not going to be the striker this time, but it is Diamantino coming on, replacing Frasco. So Diamantino is a what we today call a false nine. He's a supporting forward that can get into the gaps, into the space between the lines. He can score goals and he can set them up. Good substitution here as Diamantino Miranda tries to get into this one and tries to make a difference. Unfortunately, he really got no service. He, he worked hard. He did plenty of running off the ball, creating space, but nothing really to show for it. And in the 78th minute, it's Miguel Munoz, the manager, going to his bench once again for Spain. And this time it is Juan Antonio Senor coming on, replacing Santiago Uricaga. And it is um, it, it is a midfielder coming on for, for a defender. And Spain are looking to steal the victory, looking to get the two points, and looking to assure themselves of a situation where they do not have to win the final match against West Germany. And right now Spain look more likely to steal a winner. But then just like that, the momentum will shift the other way. And in the 84th, now it is Shalana across from the left. He glances off of Jordan's his cross glances off of Jordan's head over Gokochea onto Lima Pareto, who has a free header, but his header is right at Arconada. And Portugal can't believe that they how close they just became to stealing a late winner. 86th, it is Gokochea with a direct kick. But it's right at Bentu. 87th, Bentu with another great save, this time on Sarabia. 
a minute later in the 88th. It's again Bantu. He's he picks it up here in the late stages, holding on to this result for his team. And of course, if you're watching this on Footballia like I was, that is the moment where the video cuts out and fades to black. They're still playing. We don't get to hear the final whistle. We don't see the end, but we know that the match ends 1-1 and the two Iberian uh, neighbors will each take a share of the spoils from this match. And we had already established earlier in the day, West Germany had defeated Romania 2-1. That was on a pair of goals from Rudy Voller. And that puts West Germany in first place in Group 2 after two matches. They have three points. Remember, it's two points for a win, one for a draw in 1984. Spain are second on two points, as, and they have two goals scored in their goal difference. Um, they have the same goal difference, obviously. Two draws is, is always going to be a zero goal difference, but two goals scored for Spain. Portugal in third right now on the outside looking in, going into the final match. They also have two points, but only one goal scored. And Romania are in last place, but by no means out of it as they sit on one point and a win against Portugal in the final uh, match day would give Romania a very, very good opportunity and very good probability of advancing depending on the result, of course, of the other match. And it leaves this group two completely wide open for the final day of the group stage. And we will be talking about that final day very soon. However, before we go back to 1984, I do have a couple of Mr. Portugal episodes dropping. All right, the first one is going to drop in the next day or two. And it's actually going to be it's going to be a Mr. Benfica episode that I'm using as as a bonus episode for the PTB Media Network. And what it is, it was recorded earlier today. It is my my guest appearance on the YouTube show and podcast known as Benfica After 90. Okay, we I I teamed up with Mario, Alex, and Luis from Benfica After 90 to cover both Benfica's match earlier today and Portuguese national teams return to play some 10 months later. I don't know, since November. Um, it was Portugal versus Croatia as Portugal began their defense of the UEFA Nations League Match day one of the group stage of the UEFA Nations League played earlier today at the Stadio do Dragão, and Portugal played Croatia. Like I said, so I was on that show and we broke down both. We broke down that match as well as a Benfica match that was played earlier today as well, a preseason match. So yes, we have preseason matches here on September the sixth, and we have international dates and club matches on the same day. This is a very strange year. This twenty twenty, and. I have to believe that in 2040, we'll be talking a lot about 2020. We'll be looking back at it in just the bizarre year that it was, not just in football, but in, in the world in general. But that that will be a bonus episode that will drop, and I will also do a, a more standard Mr. Portugal episode where I review the match with Croatia. And then I, I'm looking to get... The third match of this 1984 throwback out before I do a review of Portugal's next year UEFA Nations League match against Sweden, which is coming up this Tuesday, which will be uh, September the 8th. So 
There's a lot of Mr. Portugal content coming up here on the PTB Media Network. And if you're a Benfica fan, please go over to my Mr. Benfica page, my Mr. Benfica feed, if, if you will, um, over on, on the channel. And I, I have some new stuff up there as well. And, of course, always new stuff coming here on, on the PTB Media Network. Now, before I sign off, I've got a... A little musical uh, gift for everyone, for all y'all, as we stay in 1984 and stay in the spirit of 1984. Here is a Portuguese classic song to send you away here from this cap. Number five, okay, as we pull the DeLorean back up in 2020 and we leave 1984 behind for a while. Um, here is a song to remember 1984. It is maybe one of the biggest songs from Portuguese music that year. It's from the the well-known Portuguese rock band GNR, Genier, as they say in Portuguese. And this is their 1984 classic tune, Dunas. Enjoy the song, everybody. Have a great week. Um, if you're in the United States, enjoy Labor Day, which is 24 hours away right now. And I'll catch you next time here on the PTB Media Network. This has been the Mr. Mike Agustinu signing off.